All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the fourth day of May 2021. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. And I want to invite you to keep your questions and comments coming along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. I also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Sponsors for today's show, Novo Resources, Sitka Gold Corp, El Oro Resources, Irving Resources, Hannon Metals, Lion One Metals, SK Mining Corp, Corp. and Firefox Gold. Before we get into today's show, I want to inform you of an interview I did this past week with Darwin Green. He is the president and CEO of High Gold Mines. Uh, It trades in Canada under the symbol HIGH. You can buy it in the States under HGGOF. The company has a high-grade, precious metals-rich polymetallic deposit in Alaska, approaching a million ounces on a gold equivalent basis, grading around 11 grams per ton gold equivalent. At its current price of only about a third of its high last summer, I consider High Gold Mines to be a real sleeper at its current price, which is why I picked up a few shares this last week for my own account. You can view my video interview with Darwin on my YouTube channel at J. Taylor Media. I've titled this week's show, Is Inflation Transitory? Peter Buchvar, Chief Investment Officer of Bleakley Advisory Group, visits for the first time, and he will be with me during the second half of today's show. Right after the first commercial break, Chris Taylor of Great Bear Resources joins me to provide an update on the growth of that company's Tier 1 Dixie Gold discovery in Ontario, and in just a minute... Uh, Before the commercial break, Quentin Henning will join me to provide an update on the production progress being made by Novo Resources on its Beaton's Creek gold mine in Western Australia. The big macroeconomic question in the minds of bondholders is whether the uptick in inflation now is simply a transitory event or if it is the start of a secular bear market for bonds akin to that that occurred in the 1970s. After acknowledging that indicators of economic activities and employment have strengthened because of progress on vaccines and strong policy support, the Federal Reserve remains firmly committed to the belief that while inflation has risen, it is largely reflecting transitory factors. I'm old enough to recall that during the 1970s, the Fed uttered similar comforting words only to watch the CPI soar to well over 10% 
leading to draconian 17% interest rates to avoid the American economy shooting off into double-digit or even triple-digit inflation. We'll ask Peter Buchvar whether he thinks dollar inflation is, in fact, transitory or what that might mean if that's not the case. And, in fact, we are starting to see a very serious inflation problem straight ahead. So we'll ask Peter about that in the second half of today's show. But right now, I'm happy to tell you that Quentin Henney is with me uh, for an update on Noble Resources. Thank you for joining me again, Quentin, to give us an update on the startup of production for Novo Resources at Beaton's Creek. As um, your CEO, Robert Humperson, pointed out uh, on November 29th, I'd like you to just perhaps give our listeners an overview of what was in that press release. You reported uh, 7,375 ounces of gold production and 1,158 ounces of silver since the pouring of the first gold bar on February 16th. Now, a quick back-of-the-envelope calculation suggests that you're daily production was around 100, give or take 100 ounces of gold per day at this startup phase, which at that level might add up to 30,000, 40,000 ounces of gold per year, but that's quite a far cry from what we are anticipating. And I think we were talking, maybe in my mind anyway, I was thinking 80 to 100,000 ounces a year is sort of what we're anticipating. Now, I know every mine that I've ever seen startup always has some hiccups, and so I'm not in the least bit surprised, especially given the fact that your project is quite unconventional in many ways. But what has given me optimism is the fact that from that press release at least it seems to me that you and your management team are really addressing the challenges head on and that you seem to have an answer for all of the issues that you're uh, that have come up so far so perhaps for the sake of our listeners just give us an overview of what was in that press release and what your thoughts are right now certainly do look uh, i'm going to kind of break things down into two categories okay there's a lot involved in the ramp up it's not just about mining but it's about transporting the rock over to the mill and milling and other aspects. Okay, so there's there's a lot uh, to discuss here. So I'm going to break it down into two categories. One would be, we'll say, things that are progressing fairly well and normal for a ramp-up operation. And then the other thing uh, I will break out, uh, the second category, would be issues or challenges that we've had and how we're addressing. Okay, mm-hmm. so basically things that, um, you know, have caused issues on site for us. Okay, as far as the uh, the the milling goes, uh, it has come off very much in line with what we expected. The mill has been operating uh, on average of about 1.5, 1.6 million ton per annum run uh, here lately, and they have been gradually ramping it up, and we expect, as it says in the news release, to, to be able to operate this at maybe 1.9 to 2 million ton per annum. Uh, right now, there's no indication that we can't achieve that. Okay, then no, that's a good thing. I mean, 2 million ton per annum for the mill is fantastic. Now, the other things about the mill, we are seeing high gravity recovery, which is what was projected. You know, we got coarse gold, so we're seeing a lot of gravity recovery. Uh, we're also seeing the, the recoveries, the overall recoveries, uh, starting to, to creep up, up into the mid-90s, which is what we expect. You know, this is a free milling deposit. Uh, so all of that is is uh, coming together very very well. Uh, now uh, on the the transport side, uh, they have actually had to work through a number of issues, uh, just getting the tonnage from the mine site over to the mill. But I think at this point, those are pretty standard ramp up. Look, I'm not uh, a miner; I'm a geologist. But you know, from what I understand, listening to everyone, it sounds like they've got that un- under control. So, in other words, transport all smooth. Okay, now we're going to work our way back to the mine. Okay, so the mine. Um, 
we have a mine schedule that required us to mine the back area, so the, the area where the this dedicated waste disposal area is going to be uh, built. Uh, we had to mine that first, and that was lower grade. It was known to be lower grade, and we just you know simply had to mine it to get it out of the way so that when we go in and start dumping rock there, we don't bury up uh, some resource that, that would have otherwise been uh, yield, yielded some gold. So that's largely done, so that part of the, the mining uh, ramp up has been smooth. They have had to cut their teeth with dilution. You know, they had uh, experiments around uh, doing some blasting. They they basically are now doing blasting down to the top of the mineralized horizons and and blasting the waste and then leaving the the mineralized material there to be mined as we had planned, which is now bringing dilution down. So I think that's under control again. That's a normal ramp up thing. All right. So everything I've discussed to this point has been normal ramp up. You know, it's cutting your teeth and. And, uh, you know, getting in there and, and figuring out uh, best practices and how to do things. Okay, now where we have had challenges that I would say are out, outside of the norm of ramp up have largely been around getting grade control assays back in a timely fashion. Uh, we we are using the chrysalis technique, uh, which is a gamma ray, you know, photon emission gamma ray uh, a- assay of gold, which is uh, new. It's certified. It's it's uh, proven. In fact, it's becoming exceedingly popular in Australia, and that's why we're having delays. Is that the the capacity of the analysis uh, analytic facilities uh, has simply been maxed out? Now it's unfortunate because they they told us we would have priority, and then all of a sudden people. Say Start offering lots more money, inflation. Okay, and next thing you know, we don't have priority. But I think we've got a, a solution to that. But this is certainly out of the norm of normal ramp up. Not getting your your grade control assays in a timely fashion. Okay, it's been a bit frustrating. Um, I must say. Now we are uh, planning, as we've talked about recently, about doing. Look, the grade control drilling is actually working well. Mm-hmm. Where there's gold. So that part I love. I mean, I love being able to see with very high resolution uh, where the, the gold is. Now, uh, to give people an idea, uh, we're doing RC drilling, but we're taking half meter samples. So every half meter we take a sample. That means we have very, very clear resolution, you know, on a half meter uh, increment. Mm-hmm. You know, where, where mineralization is. That's great. Now, the other thing is the Chrysos numbers are fantastic. I can't tell you how uh, happy we are with the actual quality of the data. The um, the RC samples that we collect, we do 10, I kid you not, 10 uh, half kilogram analyses on each sample. Okay, so we're ba- basically asking five kilograms of material out of each half meter uh, increment in our, our grade control drill. What does that mean? It means we have superb data. Okay, this is the first time ever we've got this data that that really lets us to see you know see the system unlike before we have been so happy with it that you know when we talked to the the guys who uh, authored our our uh, recent technical report they said you should do that over the entire deposit we agreed okay so that's that's why we've raised this money we're going to go nuts basically drilling this thing why do we want to do this well there's a lot of places where there's uh, some reefs that have lower grade mineralization around them and there's going to be opportunity to bulk mine that's one reason the other reason is that this kind of resolution really does tell us you know mine over here don't mine over there I mean, it gives us just that black and white picture uh, it minimizes the nugget effect in, in essence and it allows us to see with great clarity where the mineralization is this is a great 
outcome. Okay, so these are all positive things that have uh, are going to come from this whole exercise. But the frustration around getting those assays has been very high amongst everyone in the company. Now, what have we done? Look, I've been working with the team, the geologic team on site. These are young geologists who are sitting there every day watching the diggers operate. And they're making sure the ore gets in the trucks and the waste goes to the dump, okay? Uh, they've been doing a fantastic job. Over the past four four to six weeks, we'll call it, we've been working out protocols. And we're now to the point where these guys are very, very effective at this, okay? They're, they're making great judgment calls, even without the entirety of the data that they need, the great controlled data. Okay, the, you know, it's it's a challenge, but we've, we've learned how to overcome it using visual controls or we're overcoming it. It's not ideal, but... But uh, we do expect here shortly, this is where the solution is, to have uh, access to more chrysos uh, capacity. And that will probably be within the next two to three weeks. We'll start to be able to get our uh, assays through very quickly. And that will also include the upcoming uh, infill holes that we're going to drill. Okay, so so we have kind of a trick up our sleeve. You know, hopefully we can pull this together. I'm, I'm fairly confident we'll get there now uh, and have access to Chrysos such that we can catch up on our backlog of great control assays as well as undertake this program. Okay, so we've worked through that bugaboo, but or we're working through that bugaboo. But, uh, you know, otherwise the, the ramp up is actually going quite well. Mm-hmm. I'm very- it sounds very encouraging to me. And now I have a bit more of an understanding why the number of ounces uh, at that level, you started out with lower grade material. This is a learning curve for sure, especially with a, a project that is so unconventional. So if I understand you right, Quentin, what you're saying is you hope to have or expect to have uh, control of the lab process so that you can take charge of that not and not uh, be dependent on a third party. We, we have built, uh, we actually are, I think, near completion, uh, a prep facility on site at Beans uh-huh. Creek. Taking charge of that, that was one sticky wicket. And then the other sticky wicket is enough access to machines, and we'll be able to talk about that solution in a week or two. Very good. Well, I thank you very much, Quentin, for helping us understand uh, the the details. Uh, I think there are a lot of misconceptions out there. A lot of people are saying, well, I told you so. This, this isn't going to work. Um, I, I remain very confident, and I want to thank you very much for spending time to explain this to us uh, because um, ignorance is not bliss. So thank you so much for helping us understand, Quentin. All right, folks. Well, uh, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away because when we come back, Chris Taylor of Great Bear Resources will be with us to give us an update on that wonderful project called the Dixie Gold Deposit in Ontario. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Chris Taylor. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Firefox Gold is actively exploring in Finland, where recent discoveries have sparked a new gold rush. Firefox controls a major portion of a prospective gold belt, giving the company a distinct advantage for exploration and strategic partnerships. The company's strong international leadership team, combined with its Finland-based exploration specialists, will put Firefox on the crest of the coming wave of gold discoveries. Firefox Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol FFOX. Go to firefoxgold.com to subscribe for updates. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening. 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me once again, Chris Taylor. Uh, he is the president of Great Bear Resources and also a member of the board. He is also a structural geologist, uh, has more than 20 years of experience in the field. Is that a, really a remarkable uh, young, well, pretty young by my standards anyway, young uh, <laughs> career, 20-plus uh, years, but my goodness, uh, a lot of geologists, when, they, uh, when they're my age and they're ready to retire, uh, would dream of have, having, have had, having had such a, a success as the Dixie Deposit. Chris, um, thanks for joining me again. It's really good to have you with me once again. Yeah, thank you, Jay. You know, uh, I guess before we get started, I should just uh, tell our listeners, GBR is a symbol in Toronto. Uh, GTBAF, you can buy it in the U.S. as I have. Fifty only, uh, Chris. Correct me if I'm wrong. If I'm wrong about this, but I think only 53 million shares yet. Does that sound right? Yeah, 57 now. But you're pretty much uh, bang on there. Wow. Okay? I mean, that's that's really something for a company uh, that has achieved all you've done. I saw a price of 1446, $14.46 in Canadian money earlier today. That would give you a market cap of, I guess, you'd be pushing, getting close to 800 million, something like that. Um, yeah. You know, when we when we spoke, uh, I guess it was a couple of months ago, you know, I was mistakenly suggested that your shares hadn't really moved much. It sort of meandered around for a year, but I was so wrong about that as I looked, and, and you corrected me, by the way, but I looked at the chart this morning. You said you had doubled. Well, actually, you've more than doubled. You went from the low of, I guess, a pandemic low of something like $4 in Canadian money all the way up to 20 in a matter of months, um, you know, to, by July. Um, and so, uh, but since then, you're sort of meandering around as you're doing the engineering and the stuff that people don't get terribly excited about. And I, I, I think, though, that there may be more than what people are recognizing there. It seems to me that the market is suggesting that, you know, with its act- with its activity, that this is suggesting that probably all that's, that the wealth uh, has basically been discovered already and there's not much reason to get excited about this story. I guess we'll find out when you provide some your uh, your maiden resource which is going to come up sometime in the hopefully not too distant future but what do you say to people that say eh, you know why pay attention to great bear anymore uh, I think you know it's fourteen dollars a half a billion dollar seven well we just said the market cap is fairly substantial uh, what do you say to those people well it's uh, it's a bit of a paradox for us because inside of great bear we're uh, you know we're vibrating with excitement might be the best way to describe it uh-huh. for instance I was on site recently, just a few weeks ago now, and one of the new board members that we brought in is a mining engineer uh, with a lot of operational experience in mines, and we were just trying to get our heads around some of the early feedback we're getting from engineering groups, and there's a number of these guys working on what we have now, and it's very exciting to see that what we're going to provide uh, for the market is that really, really unusual combination of high-grade gold in a significant 
open pit type scenario. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. probably the most likely development scenario here is that it will be uh, a large operation, uh, a lot of ounces produced on an annual basis, probably most likely starting with a high-grade open pit operation and then progressing for many years after that in an underground mining operation. And in that sense, um, you know, what Great Bear will provide will have very, very few parallels uh, in the world of mineral exploration today. And that's that. Um, that's a really top-level project that looks like it'll make a lot of money in a short period of time. So those are forward-looking statements, if I've ever made any. But uh, uh-huh. when you're looking at the kind of assay results that we've generated just consistently for years in a row now, um, that's really what should bring in the value for Great Bear. That should be exciting, is getting away from the speculation and delivering on those sort of uh, realities or that what we see. Those are the realities of the project. So very rare and very exciting for us uh, inside the company. Yeah, right. If you can have, uh, you know, you have such high grades that come right up to the surface, very close to the surface, uh, both uh, with your LP zone as well as the earlier hinge and uh, I guess those two more traditional Red Lake type deposits uh, also come pretty close to the surface as well. So I guess that's that's right. If you can get, uh, you know, a lot of heavy production, low cost production early on, the project's uh, net present value would obviously be enhanced considerably. Uh, so that is certainly something people will be wanting to watch. Uh, so you'll, when do you expect to come out with your first, with your maiden uh, resource, Chris? Do you have a time in mind? I'm sure you do. Yeah, it's most likely to be in the uh, first quarter of next year. But what we're getting is all the input now from the engineers and the planners that are telling us where we need additional drill holes to be able to finish off that process. And I'll know in the next few weeks. So we'll make an announcement in the not-too-distant future of when exactly that date is going to be. And that's, uh, you know, that's what I think will be a very interesting. Well, then the clock is ticking. Right? The clock is ticking on when that number is coming, and if we're correct about the potential, the economic potential of the system and we deliver on it, there should be a very pleasant uh, you know, sort of valuation that comes into Great Bear at that time based on what we expect. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how far away is, your, is the, uh, the hinge zone from the LP zone? Uh, roughly about uh, 500 meters. So in any sort of potential mining scenario, I think... You know, it's what attracts us to the project, despite the fact that we own it. Uh, if we didn't own it and we were looking at it from the external point of view, like any other mining company in the world, what would really attract you to it is that you have this multi-kilometer LP fault target, which, you know, frankly, will probably extend to great depths and has, uh, right now, we've got drilling in this grid over five kilometers. That will be most likely mined in an open pit bulk tonnage type scenario and then Mm -hmm. go underground for however long it goes for. And these things in the Red Lake area tend to go for kilometers, like two, two and a half kilometers depth at the main mine. Um, But they're located right beside these other zones. So very likely what I would expect to see is open pit uh, bulk tonnage mining operation at low cost. That mm-hmm. would get everything going. Uh, most likely, that's appealing because it would pay itself back very quickly. And then in the future, you'd have concurrent mining operation at the big LP fault zone underground and mm-hmm. at the other zones that we found, the Dixie Lynn, the Hinge zone. And that would uh, that would be very exciting because it would uh, keep uh, low-cost mining going. But the project conceivably could all be paid for uh, you know, with uh, the money that you would generate from the open pit portion of the operation for many years, that would be uh, that would be paid for in a very quick period of time. If what we're seeing is correct, 
we would expect this project to be one that would pay for itself in a very short window, and that makes it appealing from that point of view as well. Yeah, net present value. It's uh, And uh, would you see the possibility of... Uh drifting over from the hinge to the LP or would you or would the LP start with a I mean I'm not I'm sorry the uh, the hinge uh, from the LP zone to the hinge would you see a possible drifting over there or would you start open pit from the uh, from the uh, from from the hinge zone I've seen a variety of different scenarios uh, generated. Some of them include open pit on top of the Dixie Limb zone. For instance, Mm -hmm. certainly um, they think it's a good idea on the LP fault zone. But uh, they're not far away. They're only 500 meters apart, so they're likely to be developed more or less concurrently. And the good thing about the project is all the material and the metallurgical work that we've done so far and all the thousands and thousands of observations of free free gold, visible gold, it looks like all that material can go through the same mill together. And that means that you can have an optimized type of mill feed uh, sourcing from all these different areas, but going through the same plant, uh, which would be a really, really good economic scenario for making sure that you maintain that production at the level you want to see over the long term as well. I want to ask you about your royalty company, but before we get to that, before we run out of time, I want to ask you just to perhaps compare the footprint now of what you have on the uh, on the LP zone, the LP fault zone, with some of the other larger Canadian projects. That's a great uh, point, Jay. It's really important to compare apples to apples instead of apples to oranges, and we make sure that we publish material that shows that sort of footprint, the big scale comparison of things like the Canadian Malarctic Mine, which is three and a half kilometer long open pit that we see with uh, Yamana and Nico Eagle that operated. It's the biggest mm-hmm. mine in Canada. That has a similar footprint to the LP fault zone. Now remember, that's just the main zone in our project. It's not all the gold zones. Detour Lake is a big one that was bought for, I believe it was about four, four and a half billion dollars by Kirkland Lake uh, just in the recent past, a couple of years ago. And that's one that has a similar size footprint to the LP fault zone as well. Or the Hemlo deposit, which was really the crux of Canadian exploration success and discovery in the 1980s and is still in operation today, 40 years later. That one has a single, a similar physical footprint to what we're looking at with the LP fault zone. And certainly with the deeper drilling we've been doing, it shows that the LP fault zone is alive and well. And actually, uh, in where we've drilled it, it's actually improving uh, in the areas that we've done the deeper drilling so far. So we're mm-hmm. showing uh, that sort of large-scale potential. And if you're going to compare apples to apples, compare it to the right apples, these major projects, these sort of uh, large tier one type projects are really what we uh, are more comparable to. Well, certainly investors that have gotten in early, as as my subscribers have, uh, have done extremely well, buying the stock at well under a dollar a couple of years back and up to $20 in Canadian money. But you also have some icing on the cake here in the form of a royalty, the GBR. I guess it's trades, um, what's the GBR royalty, uh, the Great Bear royalty. Tell our listeners about that royalty. What? Uh, just explain what it is. Well, effectively, it's a plain vanilla 2% net smelter royalty on the property, on the Dixie property. And we spun it out to shareholders because we wanted to make sure that long-term our shareholders uh, got the benefit of having that royalty. And now, of course, uh, you can buy it in the market if you're interested. And quite interesting for us to see that it was listed uh, quite recently, just a few weeks ago, and it's trading now. Uh, a 2% net smelter royalty on Dixie is trading at about $100 million uh, value. 
And that's quite incredible given that the uh, Great Bear as a whole is trading at about an $800 million valuation. Uh-huh. And the analysts and independent reviewers that are looking at that value, they think that the royalty should trade for about, uh, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20% of the value of the project. And what uh-huh. we're looking at with the early trading here is that it's uh, implying a valuation on Great Bear that's considerably larger than Great Bear's current value. And it's the kind of thing that, uh, if we're correct about what Great Bear is, and then, uh, you know, it's going to tie into the value of Great Bear royalties, it could be uh, one of the 10 to 15 largest or most valuable royalties of this type in the world. And if that's the case, uh, it would have considerably more value than we currently see as well. So these are sort of the ways that we're trying to put uh, money into shareholder pockets as we do the engineering work, as you say, the less exciting work that leads to that real value unlock in the long term is what we're engaged in right now. We keep reporting good drill results, but it's really those sort of potential economics that we want to deliver and we're very optimistic about that that should also have a pleasant uh, implication for the value of the Great Bear Royalty side. And that's already trading at a $100 million value, which makes it one of the larger mm-hmm. junior royalty companies in the world just based mm-hmm. on that one asset. Yeah, fantastic. Well, uh, do, you, do you see the possibility of this royalty company buying other assets than besides the Dixie? Or is that just looking too far into the future? It, I mean, it's possible, uh, but uh, it's one of these things where uh, when you have a really good asset on your hands, I mean, where else could you find a royalty that has similar potential value to the Dixie royalty? Uh, we, mm-hmm. I, I just said it, it's one of the top 10 or 15 of these types of assets on the planet. It's very unlikely we'll be able to acquire something of similar quality. So um, one of the best ways that we can add value over the near term in that company, say during 2021, is to let Great Bear do its job and let mm-hmm. the grandiose type statements and projections that I'm making uh, come to fruition. And if we're uh-huh. right and the economics are good and the project is what we think it is, the value should be significantly better. And that's really just, uh, we just need the time to do our job. And you just build up cash, just build up a lot of cash or perhaps build up some gold in that, uh, in that, in that royalty. Who knows? But anyway, build up value of one kind <laughs> or another. Chris, it's great. Yeah. Uh, just one more thing, real quickly here. My engineer is saying I have 30 seconds. You have a webinar coming up, I think, pretty soon. Tell our listeners how they can avail themselves to that. Because yeah, I know these are very valuable. You do a great job of explaining the project in these uh, in these webinars. Yeah, Jay, we have a lot to talk about, Bob Singh and myself. Uh, we haven't done one in many months now, so there will be one coming up in the near future. And I'd expect to see an announcement on timing, including participation instructions, in the next couple weeks. Excellent. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it go at that. Chris, thank you so much for updating us. A lot of excitement still there, even if the market isn't recognizing it so much right now. Obviously, they are in, the, in, that, uh, uh, in that royalty company. Somebody sees something valuing that royalty company where it is valued now. So thanks so much for being with us, and um, we'll look forward to keeping up with you in the future. Thanks, Rick. All righty, folks. So we do have to go to break now. Peter Bukvar will be with us for the first time, and uh, we'll want to hear what he has to say uh, at Bleakley Capital, how they're, uh, how they're managing their, their money over there. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Peter Bukvar. Voice America is available on your Google connected device. Okay, Google, play Turning Hard Times into Good Times podcast on iHeartRadio. Try it today. 
Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Voice America Business Network the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. Really pleased to have with me for the first time Peter Bukvar. He is the Chief Investment Officer of Bleakley Advisory Group, $3.5 billion wealth management firm located in New Jersey, and he is the editor of the Book, of the book uh, Report. He previously was the Chief Market Analyst for the Lindsay Group, that's a macroeconomic and market research firm, started by Larry Lindsay, who is a director of the National Economic Council uh, and assistant to the president on economic policy for the uh, president, George W. Bush. Uh, Peter's market insights are frequently sought out by industry leaders, and for several years he has been a regular guest, host, and contributor on CNBC. Uh, he is also regularly quoted in articles in Forbes, Barron's, Bloomberg, CNN Money, and a number of other outlets. So uh, Peter uh, has graduated uh, with um, distinguished uh, honors, Uh, from George Washington University, Um, certainly somebody that I have been watching and uh, observing for some time, uh, mostly at CNBC in the past, but uh, it's really great to have him with us, uh, a person of this background, Uh, very blessed to have Peter with us today. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thanks, Jay. I appreciate having me on. It's really good to have you. Um, You know, this is your first time on the show, so I thought I might ask you, uh, perhaps talk a little bit about Bleakley Advisory Group. Uh, What can you tell us about this group, and then maybe talk a little bit about um, how you're managing the portfolio uh, in this environment, like just in general, what sort of things you're owning? Right. So Bleakley uh, is a wealth management firm with about 50 different advisors, most of them in New Jersey, but uh, in, in, in many other cities, or actually probably up to about $8 billion now uh, amongst the different advisors. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, I um, run the investment committee, so I help uh, put together um, client portfolios in addition to running two of my own strategies, one being a global macro and another one being uh, an income-focused strategy. Uh, I, I think that the word diversification is the, the typical cliche that people throw out there in terms of, of uh, a portfolio for, for the average client. But right now, I think it's, um, it, it, it's, it's pretty important to actually have one. Uh, you know, we're in a world where there is nothing cheap anymore. Well, I shouldn't say nothing. 
there, there's fewer and fewer things that are that are cheap out there. A lot of things are expensive uh, in the equity world, but particularly U.S. markets. Certainly in in credit, fixed income, uh, you have what I believe is been an epic uh, bubble, but a bubble that's been going on for years. And negative interest rates is sort of the the epitome of 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 that when. Um, You've turned an asset into a liability. So uh, trying to create a portfolio that can grow with that client's financial needs is getting more and more difficult relative to the risk that you are taking to try to get that incremental return. So being a value investor, uh, you know, I feel like my options are becoming more limited, but I'm still finding them mostly out in, in, in areas outside the U.S., I think mm-hmm. that when you look at over the last 10 years, the um, U.S. market has so outperformed the rest of the world where the sort of the market cap of the U.S. market relative to U.S. GDP has become very outsized relative to uh, international markets relative to their level of GDP. So when looking for value, I think it, you, people need to widen their, their, their geographic focus. Now, mm-hmm. part of the reason for the U.S. overvaluation is, yes, it's monetary policy, low rates, but it's also the uh, incredible uh, performance of U.S. technology companies that, uh-huh. um, you know, outside of a few names in China, is very much unmatched around the world. And that is also uh, a reason why our markets are very expensive. But... You know, as we've seen with, with earnings season, where good earnings were not rewarded, uh, it's a sign that we've priced in a lot of good news, that valuations have probably gotten way too stretched, and it's time to digest some of the recent gains. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing of the two strategies you, uh, you manage on your own, you said income and global macro, that global macro would be a lot... Would, You'd have more opportunities there than on the income side. I'm I'm just wondering where in the world do you go to get income these days? It's it's safe. Well, income. I mean, there's still. You look at Europe. There's still some good, decent, paying dividend paying uh-huh. companies in Europe. Uh, uh-huh. There's some some the, the, the same in Asia. Uh, there aren't there aren't uh, so many, but that th- I, I find dividend yields uh, more attractive outside the U.S. I mean, you take for example. Uh, the, the FTSE 100 in the UK. Uh, so you have the dividend yield of the S&P 500, which mm-hmm. is about one and a half to 1.6 uh, percent. The dividend yield in the UK is three and a half percent. If you go to over to Asia, and the dividend yield of um, of the Singapore stock market, to use that as a, as a, as a market there, the dividend yield 3.3 percent. So th- there's yield to be had, but um, you have to widen your eyes outside the U.S. Now, there's still some good dividend-paying stocks in the U.S. That'll give mm-hmm. you 3 4 5%. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't want to downplay the opportunities that are here for those that are looking for income. Um, mm-hmm. But it's more slimmer pickings in the U.S. relative to other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So would you say the balance of your, uh, of your portfolio, uh, the income portfolio, is overseas? I guess it probably is. No, it's a, it's a combination because, you know, I'm yeah. still finding... Uh, income opportunities in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with real estate, you know, REITs included in that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, with the U.S. REIT market, is yes, they're they're sensitive to interest rates. They'll be sensitive to to Fed policy, uh, but there's there's a, a pretty wide gap between the private real estate markets, which are trading extraordinarily rich with, with cap rates down to three and a half percent, 
uh, and, and public REITs that um, high quality ones that are that have cap rates that are above the private market. Mm-hmm. Um, we've titled today's show "Is Inflation Transitory?" I guess that's a that's a big question in everybody's minds. The Fed wants us to believe it is. Um, you know, there's a certain amount of um, anticipation the Fed has to try to get us to think the way they want us to think, for sure. So we'll behave in the way they want us to behave. Uh, do you have a forecast? Uh, I'm sure you do have a forecast for for uh, inflation uh, and interest rates. Um, well, starting out with inflation, that do you do you think it's transitory? As as uh, Jay Powell tells us, it is. Well, first, before I answer that question, the interesting thing about the Fed is that while they're saying it's transitory, because that's what they believe, on the other hand, they don't want it to be transitory because their their policy has been codified to say we believe in asymmetric inflation policy. Mm-hmm. So they want a period of time of non-transitory inflation to, I believe, nonsensically offset a period of below target inflation. Uh, mm-hmm. I think this is all gobbledygook, uh, crackpot economics, uh, but it is the, the policy that they have. So they, on one hand, say it's not transitory because they don't want the market to jump the gun in terms of thinking that the Fed is getting closer to tapering, let alone raise interest rates at some point. But on the other hand, as I said, they don't want it to be transitory because it meets their nonsense inflation goal. Mm-hmm. I happen to believe that it is not transitory. And to, to break down inflation, which I like to do, is, is you have mm-hmm. the surface, services side of the economy, yeah. which services inflation x energy is about 60% of, of the CPI. So just use the CPI regardless of what you think about CPI or not. It is 60% of it. And services inflation for the last 30 years has averaged about 3%. Mm-hmm. Even over the last 10 to 20 years here, it's averaged uh, 25 to 2.7%. That is pretty mm-hmm. persistent inflation. It's due mm-hmm. to higher rents, medical care, insurance, tuition, uh, even every year you go to the movie theater, it costs you know a dollar more at the movie theater. Mm-hmm. Um, Pre-COVID, of course, we were seeing uh, continuous rising prices for uh, airline tickets and hotels and, and, and so on. It was mm-hmm. always the good side of the economy that saw price compression. Mm-hmm. Sensibly sens- so because of, of technology and production efficiency just naturally is a depressant on price increases. All you have to do is look mm-hmm. at the whole technology sector over the past right. 30 years. But now we are, so we saw with COVID a slowdown in the rate of services growth because rents uh, fell sharply in the big cities and the pace of growth in other cities slowed. Uh, and, and obviously people weren't going out, so other parts of the service economy saw price declines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you saw this big rise in goods inflation. Now you're mm-hmm. seeing a resumption higher in services inflation. So the whole transitory debate now comes down to what do goods prices do from here? And I'm of the belief that the, the sharp rise in commodity prices is not going to recede anytime soon, that while supply chains may uh, get sort of smoothed out somewhat over the next couple of quarters, there's still going to be issues and prices are still going to remain elevated. And the cost of transportation, which is a key part of the discussion about uh, goods inflation, because every single thing that is produced in this world ends up on either a plane, a ship, a railroad, or a truck. Um, Mm -hmm. In 2019, we saw a huge amount of 
truck bankruptcies in response to the tariff battle with China. We've seen massive consolidation in the uh, shipper containing business, container business, uh, mm-hmm. over the last bunch of years. So I don't think that the rise in transportation costs is, is so temporary. So uh-huh. I'm of the belief that inflation is going to be stickier than the Fed thinks. And I think come summertime, people are going to start to realize that by seeing three to four tenths month over month increases in CPM PCE and realize this is not going to recede so quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. That will then be the potential blueprint for another uh, leg higher in, in longer-term interest rates, and then we'll intensify the pressure on the Fed to taper uh, their QE policy. Yeah. Yeah, well, higher rates, what is that going to do to the, um, to the equity market? Well, we've seen a rise in the 10-year this year from 90 basis points at the end of 2020 to about 160 today. So mm-hmm. 70 basis points, that's almost, almost three rate hikes, essentially. Mm-hmm. And the market's powered through it because the market said, well, uh, it's happening for good reason. The economy is rebounding. And, yeah, inflation's here, but um, we'll, we'll celebrate the improving economy. That said, there has been a valuation rethink on a bunch of different parts of the tech market that worked so well on the work-from-home trade last year, like Zoom, for example, uh, to use that as an example, uh, or Teladoc that uh, had an incredible 2020s, but valuations that got way too expensive and seem to be set for other software names. So I think there has been a response uh, in the frothy parts of the market. SPAC mm-hmm. is, SPACs have cooled down yeah. uh, as well. That uh, I think is also in response to the rise in rates and also uh, just you know too much froth got into that part of the market. So I think we've already seen a response, and uh, but it will it hasn't hit the broader market. I think if you get two percent plus in the ten year, which I do think we'll see, uh, then it has you know a broader uh, potential reverberations. Two percent might be the breaking point, uh, and then what does a two percent rate uh, do to the uh, to, to the federal budget, given Mr. Biden's expending uh, expenditures? Right. Well, um, some of it has to do with where short rates will go because, uh, you know, the Fed has been, I'm sorry, the Treasury has been issuing a lot of shorter term paper. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's why our our average maturity is only about six years. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the Fed will will try to anchor that. Now, 2% doesn't sound like a lot in the 10-year, but we have to remember that in the fourth quarter of 2018, all it took was a 2.5% Fed funds rate to, to cause a major hissy fit in the markets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really not the, the absolute level. It, it's, it's the rate of change. And when you have as much debt as we have, uh, all it takes is modest changes in interest rates times a very large amount of debt uh, equals a lot of dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's, it, it just seems uh, yeah, it's, it's hard for me to understand who's going to buy U.S. Treasuries. I guess, well, you, you probably own some in your income fund because you well, need you liquidity. Well, you will. It's just a matter of mm-hmm. what yield you, you'll demand. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I remember I lived very much through the, uh, the stagflation of the 70s. Do you see anything, any possibility of that sort of scenario evolving again? I definitely see a stagflationary type of environment, not to the extent uh, in terms of the absolute level of rates and inflation. Mm-hmm. But 
you don't need that to cause a problem. All mm-hmm. you need is even 4% inflation yeah, relative right. to the global level of interest rates, and that's a huge problem. So, um, I mean, that, that, that's the one th- problem with higher inflation now, is that the, the world's level of interest rates is not prepared for higher inflation. Not high inflation, higher inflation. Now, mm-hmm. if the Fed funds rate today was 2, 2.5, two 3, the 10-year was 3, 4%, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we can absorb uh, a rise in inflation in terms of the rate picture. But when you have short rates at zero, when you have negative rates overseas and a 10-year yield of only 160, that is not, pre- that is not preparation for sustainable inflation. Mm-hmm. No, I, I just it, it's just uh, I can't I can't conceive of this notion of of negative rates, negative nominal rates. We have negative real rates, I guess, right now. Um, and and how what that's going to do? I guess if all of the country, all of the countries in the world are doing the same thing, then the the game can go on for a while. Um, but at some point in time, it's just it's just negative rates just don't compute. I don't understand how they can work. And Europe has well, had n- negative rates for a while now. How is that working out over there? Well, if you look at the profitability of their banking system, uh, it's been a complete failure. Uh, if you look at the equity value of their publicly traded banks, it's been a complete failure. Uh, as just as as rate policy in Japan has been a complete failure, where you 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 basically eliminate the yield curve. Uh, so not only have they eliminated the yield curve, they've also killed off their bond market. Uh, the Japanese bank stock index is down 90% from where it was in 1989. Uh, the European bank stock index, last time I checked, it was about down about 70% from where it was just in 07. And the problem in Europe is that the the banks are the predominant transmission mechanism for monetary policy. Uh, most of the lending... Uh, goes through the the European banking system for small and medium sized businesses. Yeah, if you're if you're a large company, you have access to the capital markets. Well, you don't need to rely on a bank to get a loan. Right. Uh, you just go to a bank. I'm sorry, you just go to the the, the markets. But if you're a small and medium sized business, you need to go to a bank. Well, if a bank has now squeezed margins on every loan, well, they're going to be more discriminating on who they give a loan to in terms of that business's prospects or a household's balance sheet. Uh, if they had more margin in a loan, they'd be able to, to take more risk. So it's been a complete failure from, from, from that perspective, and that should really be the only perspective because uh, the banks are supposedly the transmission mechanism for monetary policy. Yeah. Well, I just uh, do you think there's any, any possibility we'll go negative here in the U.S. nominally? I, I don't. Uh, the problem... The reason why is because the U.S. money market industry is three, four trillion dollars, and you basically destroy that industry if you went negative. So I think just from a logistical standpoint, a plumbing standpoint, it's not something that we would ever do. Uh, yeah. It would be far more well. It's destructive as it is. I, I, I call it poison in one's financial system, but it would be ever more destructive in the U.S. again because of the presence of, of our money market industry. Yeah. And Alistair McCloud, who's a frequent guest on our show, talks about the problem with negative rates for the world's reserve currency as well. He thinks that might be a, a bigger problem for the U.S. and for other countries that um, uh, don't have such dominant global currencies. And this, I guess the sense is that 
commodities then could become, you know, a substitute for currencies more and more. But you, so you see a lot of commodity inflation then, I, I guess. You see uh, that as sort of a persistent um, increase in the, in the inflation pressures. Yeah, I mean, let, let's break it down. I think copper right now is, is an ever-growing, important industrial raw metal, raw industrials metal, uh, that is finding new growth areas, whether it's EVs or solar panels. or I mean, you take an EV car, it needs five times as much copper as, as an internal combustion engine. Uh, and it takes years to fully develop a mine, and we've had many years of underinvestment. I mean, over the past six months, I haven't seen any copper SPACs. Mm-hmm. I don't no. know if I've seen any energy SPACs. Um, and it is, and, and, but there's been plenty of EV SPACs where these mm-hmm. EVs need a lot of copper. Uh, yeah. You take energy. If you're the CEO of an oil company and you're hearing about your industry is getting blasted every day by the environmental crowd and, and, and all the whole shift to renewables and EVs and this and that, you're not aggressively investing in finding new wells and finding new properties. You're just going to, you're going to run your business for cash. And yeah, maybe you'll make some tuck in acquisitions, but you're not going to get aggressive in trying to find new oil, particularly mm-hmm. on a five to 10 year time horizon. So the, the, uh, uh, a dearth of investment is going to lead to higher oil prices I think China has proven to be a major needle mover when it comes to uh, global agriculture prices. They have a voracious demand for corn and soybeans because they just can't make enough on their own. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. And while uh, I have great respect for the American farmer, and particularly and also the farmers in South America, to deliver as much per yield that they can, um, you know, we're still we're even seeing record corn and, and soybean acreage being planted and we're still seeing now we're seeing seven dollar corn and almost sixteen dollar soybeans so i think that uh crop prices are going to remain elevated for a period of time after basically a 10-year bear market i mean mm-hmm. crop prices peaked in 2011 and up until this past year has done nothing uh but go down and uh, it, it was it was it was a tough time for the for the farm industry uh and i and i think as i mentioned that is about to change uh, now, you look at lumber prices. Lumber has gone up so much that I, I don't know. I, I find it hard to believe that it's going to stay up at these levels for so long just because it's literally gone parabolic. But yeah. you know, even if lumber pulled back 30%, it would still be well, well above where it was um, mm-hmm. pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. So I guess the bottom line here, Peter, with just a, a couple of minutes left here, uh, in summary, how do you think investors should be looking at this world uh, rising prices, rising inflation, um, you know, I think something like 70% of Americans are living, before COVID, we're living uh, paycheck to paycheck. Uh, just give us a, with two minutes left, give us an idea of what you think investors that aren't living paycheck by to paycheck, but to paycheck, but have some cash, some savings, how should they be viewing the world? How should they be uh, investing their money? Well, I think a lot has to do with time horizon. Uh, I think time horizon is the investor's best friend. Uh, one of the secrets of Warren Buffett was not just his ability to find great business models and, and, and invest at the right price. He had a longer time horizon than everybody else. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't bothered by declines in the market because it gave him an opportunity to buy more. I think someone who has a short-term time horizon because they have a financial commitment, whether mm-hmm. they need to 
put their kid through college or they have a wedding to pay for or some other big event, then I, I would have a, uh, I would have that cash uh, out of the market in a bank account for the next two years. Uh, mm-hmm. I think those with longer-term uh, time horizons, um, I, I think from, uh, as I mentioned earlier, investing overseas will probably give you better returns investing in the U.S. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the next five to ten years in the U.S. was one big chop fest uh, as we, we, we sort of digest uh, the incredible returns we've seen over the past ten years. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but at the same time, with risks of drawdowns, uh, especially if I'm right on inflation and where rates are potentially going. I mean, that's mm-hmm. unfortunately what we have to look forward to over the next six or 12 months is uh, constant talk about the Fed tapering. And when yeah. they start to taper is when are they going to raise interest rates? Mm-hmm. And, and that's just going to be a, a wet blanket. But, you know, comes after gains that far surpassed anybody's expectations, you know, going into a 100-year pandemic. Right. Okay. Uh, gold? You like gold? I'm very bullish on gold and silver. Uh, because I believe the Fed's going to overstay their welcome, as will all central banks. I think that negative real rates uh, will get more negative as, as rates will go higher than, than I'm sorry, the inflation will go higher than rates. And uh, because I'm long-term bearish on the dollar, uh, I expect weakness there to reassert itself. And uh, that would also be positive for the precious metals. All right. We'll have to leave it go there, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Uh, really very helpful, your ideas, uh, your remarks, and your insights. So we'll look to Thank do it again, can. I hope, sometime in the near future. Well, that is it for Definitely. today, folks. Uh, next week, John Williams, the author of Shadow Stats Newsletter, will be with me. Um, well, also, Peter, uh, I think we're going to have Quentin Henning is with us and Michael Oliver as well. So until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.